Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. What's going on? What you're about to hear is an awesome conversation I had with the CFO of Chime, Matthew Newcomb. We go deep on the payments ecosystem. And this was something that I didn't know a ton about before. I had a lot of questions and I thought that I was pretty smart when it came to ACH transfers and the like, but it it's pretty complicated and it's pretty neat. So we're going to get into that world. But before that, I want to quickly dive into what is going on at Carta, or as my boys in Boston would say, what's going on at Carta, kid? few things before we get into this old boondoggle. One, I'm not a reporter, just a tech CFO who thinks this, whatever it may be, is pretty important for any company that is venture-backed. I'm also a happy Carta customer at the moment. I believe what they've built is really important for private markets. They revolutionize transparency, trust, and the speed at which startups can transact and raise rounds. Put that money in the bank. And I interviewed their CFO, Charlie Kevers, on this year, Pod earlier this year. And I think he's one of the smartest and most intuitive and empathetic CFOs in the game. So go back and listen to that one. So what happened? I'll give you the TLDR. In a one-sentence summary, I would say Carta offers two products, two popular products. They have a bunch of products, but one is cap table management and the other is a platform for secondary transactions. And so the founder of a company who uses Carta, the company is called Linear, He uses them for their cap table management product, and he thinks that they were using confidential shareholder information to possibly facilitate trades on his company's stock without his approval on their trading platform. But before we get into that, just a quick primer on secondary transactions, what they are when they occur. So private held venture-backed companies, they often grant their employees stock options. It's a big reason why you go there. It helps attract talent at a lower salary, and it gives you that potentially limitless upside. But these stock options are not liquid until the company goes public, which can take several years or usually just, you know, that doesn't happen. So as a result, many pre-IPO companies will allow their employees to participate in tender offers, commonly called secondary transactions, which allow them to sell a portion of those vested shares to outside investors. And so a tender offer is a liquidity event. That's when an investor or a group of investors propose to buy a number of shares from existing shareholders at a set price. And tender offers can be made for both private companies and public companies. Some recent private companies in the news of tender offers are secondary transactions, OpenAI and Stripe. And it's important to note that the company itself does not get any money from a secondary transaction. That's why it's called a secondary transaction, not a primary transaction. So a primary transaction, the balance sheet changes. The cash balance goes up and new shares are created and people get diluted. But in a secondary transaction, that does not happen. Shares just exchange hands and the balance sheet does not change. So it's technically, you know, kind of a nothing burger to the company when it comes to actually running the company, but it's a total pain in the ass to administer. I've had to do a bunch of them because the company is merely just an approver, a bookmaker, a conduit by which employees and early shareholders get matched up with newer existing shareholders. And I've wasted a ton of hours coordinating between employees, angels, future shareholders, and all the lawyers. Don't forget about the lawyers. They got to eat too. Support your local lawyer. But Carta X, they help alleviate a lot of that administrative burden. And so these tender offers typically occur in conjunction with the later stage fundraise, you know, usually series C or beyond. 
And that's kind of the sweet spot where the company seems to have gotten to a point that it's de-risked to a certain extent. And you can help reward some of the early employees and founders and or angels and help them take some money off the table. Before then, though, it's a pretty big red flag to investors. It'd be kind of suspect if a Series A investor was like, hey, uh, you know, we're going to raise $100 million, but $60 million of that is going to go in my pocket. No, that would also be like a ZERP phenomenon type valuation. But that's why it's important that all tender offers get board approval. And so let's get back to the story here. That's the crux of it. The question is, was Carta using private, confidential, asymmetrical, really, information to shake loose possible transactions, which they would then benefit from without founder, CEO, CFO, board approval? Oh, okay. I'm going to need a Duncan here. Duncan, sponsor this podcast. So back to the products here. You have to dig into why using one product over the other is important. And so the first product there, their cap management table, that's their bread and butter solution. So it allows companies to keep track of who owns what as the company goes through different funding events. It's basically like an Excel spreadsheet on steroids, but you can actually create certificates and send them to the people who own it. And for anyone out there who's been at a startup and had to work a cap table past the seed round, you'll know it becomes a game of like five dimensional chess to keep track of all the movement between parties. Because as a share count, the denominator that changes and the price changes, it's really difficult to figure out who holds what at what price and make all the numbers tick and tie. And the second and newer product that we want to talk about here is Carta X. And that's the secondary market for parties to actually trade those shares. So think about it like the NASDAQ stock market, but for companies who haven't gone public yet. And so there are other secondary markets out there like Forge, Global, Hive, Equity, Zen. But the big difference here is that those companies don't have all the cap table info. And they're usually kind of shooting in the dark. They're trying to blindly go out and aggregate and build a book and get supply and demand to meet. But Carta has a major leg up on them in this sense because they have the book of record already. And so it's crucial to understand the unit economics behind each of these products and how they're actually monetized. So Carta's cap table management software, that's an annual subscription. And it usually runs companies between 5000 and 10000 per year. So not a massive cash outlay for those. And I've actually always joked like, I can't believe how cheap this is. Usually a CFO is complaining about how expensive a product is. The value and the amount of time I spend in Carta, I'm always like, wow, I can't believe this is only costing me like eight grand a year, whatever it is. And you can always add more expensive modules over time, like the 409A valuations or total comp benchmarking, but use the total comp benchmarking on mostlymetrics.com. Boom. But regardless, think of this as like a sub 20K per year product. And the secondary product gets monetized through a commission model, or basically they get a rip on whatever goes through it. So call it 2%. So the transaction in question that the CEO of Linear, Carrie Sarian, was talking about, it was $2.5 million. They get a 2% VIG off that. They pay only $10,000 a year for the bread and butter product, but this transaction will only be $100,000. So you can see the temptation pretty quickly as to why you would want to almost use the cap table software as a lead gen magnet for this higher priced transaction that can go down. So we're following the money here. And so what does this all mean for Carta? So Carta's number one product isn't cap table management, right? It's, a, it's trust. It's trust and accuracy. And that's the foundation that all of the products that they offer are really built upon. And in a way, it's kind of the closest thing. I liken it to like a blockchain, but like actually works and has real world use cases because you can trace the share's origin through certificate transfers and you always know who holds what. And Everyone was like, well, maybe this is just a misunderstanding. Maybe it was an isolated incident. But then it came up 
this guy said, I polled the investors so far, at least three of the earliest investors were contacted with the same email. Yikes. So that may be an indication of something is up. And then you look through the comments and a couple other founders out there like, hey, it's kind of happened to me too. And so let's take a look at what it means for tech CEOs and CFOs, right? So it is at the board's discretion to sell shares. So I've tried to sell shares before. I've got blocked before. I have sold shares and got accepted before, but it has to go through right of first refusal. And they should know that CardX is an option to facilitate the process. This is people like me. But CardX should never be the driver. We don't want that. That would be putting the cart before the horse. And even worse, it could cause an unsolicited domino effect of employees and investors who may look to sell and put pressure on the company to allow them to sell at a bad time. For instance, if this happened like a year ago when valuations were really, really down, I mean, even now, I guess you could say for a lot of companies, boards would be like, oh, wow, now we got to deal with all these people coming to us who say they have willing buyers for their shares. And I was making breakfast for my tyrant of a two-year-old this morning, and I was thinking as I'm making this avocado toast that 80% of my net worth is essentially in Carta. And technically, the shares are in the company I work for, which are still private, very much a liquid. But nonetheless, it is my financial source of record for vesting. And on one hand, as an employee, I like the idea of secondary transactions to help me take some money off the table. Waiting for your cash is the biggest downside of being at a startup or not being able to de-risk it all. And I actually talked with Charlie on the podcast about this, and I was super pumped about this product because I was looking at it like you're going to bring optionality to an opaque market that typically you don't really know how to handle your finances there. And this was going to be what I thought a, a boon. But I guess there is this fine line between trust, which we'll talk about. And it can also get kind of sketchy. Like if you go to your CEO or CFO and you say, oh, I have this willing buyer and you ask to sell shares and they're like, what are you talking about? We never approved this transaction in the first place. Then you kind of get into why you're trying to sell and yeah, you can spiral from there. And then if you think about it from the macro point of view, I would hate it personally if there are some employees getting a better shot to sell their shares than me because Carta happens to be working some deals behind the scenes for some, but not others. And so this is all on the backs, unfortunately, of something else kind of odd that happened. Not odd, just bad. There were these employee harassment claims that happened a couple months ago, and this bad stuff happens at tech companies all the time. That's subject for another post. Leave it bad stuff. But what was interesting is like we were almost watching a car crash in real time because Carter's CEO, Henry, went on to his email and basically blasted out to all their customers. And he, <laughs> the subject of it was Carta CEO memo about negative press, which was quite literally the worst email subject line you could have. And he was pointing out negative press that literally 99.9% of people didn't know about. And we were actually joking at my own company, like, I didn't know, but now I do. And when this situation popped up with the secondary market, the CEO took to Twitter again and was defending the company and just took like a really kind of odd path at approaching it. He wasn't really reading the room. So it was less about what happened in a lot of ways because maybe it was an isolated incident. It was more about how it was communicated. And it was kind of like watching a PR car crash in slow motion all again. Friend of the pod, Dave Kellogg, he said, Carta continues self-immolation with DIY communication strategy. Woo! From the top ropes, go back and listen to the pod I recorded with Dave on preparing for your board meeting. And so what happens now? So like I said, CEO went on Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now, and admitted wrongdoing the situation. But like most of what he typed was like, hey, why'd you have to do this publicly? Not cool, man. And 
he didn't address if it was a systematic issue or what they were doing to correct it. So I don't really know what happens from here, but it does kind of remind me of the story of Icarus. So Carta flew too close to the sun here, and they have these two amazing products. I cannot knock that, but the temptation to squeeze a little more juice out of one by using the other, it seemed just too tempting. Basically, they flew too high. And I was talking to a texting back and forth with another CFO this morning, and we were saying, so are you going to leave Carta? And both of us were like, honestly, no. It would be a total pain in the ass to rip and replace it, and there aren't better options per se for cap table management out there. I still love the UI, still love the UX, and I've selfishly invested a ton of time learning to use it. But I do think it leaves the door open to another innovative company to potentially build something in the space because we're learning in real time what customers like. And even if they said that they wanted the secondary transaction market on top of the cap table management, it does offer a lot of space for footfalls. And so I'll rephrase that. An innovative company willing to hire a VP of communications. So that's what's going on with Carta. It is January 7th, so maybe some stuff will come out in the meantime. But I need a water break. Let's get on to the pod with Matthew Newcomb, CFO of Chime. Oh, by the way, this Wednesday is my birthday. So, you know, instead of sending me flowers, just if you could give this new podcast feed five stars, I will love you forever. Thank you. Five stars. Matt, what's going on? Welcome to the pod. Thanks. Thanks for having me, CJ. So we're going to jump right into the juicy stuff here. And I love to nerd out on business models. And a lot of listeners like myself, they may be more familiar with the typical SaaS side of the tech world. And so to kick things off here, I wanted to know what are the ways that fintech companies or neobanks, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to use that term or not, but what are the ways that they typically monetize their business models? Yeah, great, great question. I love that we're getting into it on the on the first question here. So neobanks are sort of often thought of as the single category, I guess. But if you just sort of click one level deeper, there's actually a lot of very different business models underneath. So I'm going to generalize here a little bit, but I sort of think about there being like three broad categories of neobank business models. The first is probably what most folks would think, which is credit or lending businesses, right? Like you are are earning a spread, much like a big bank does, or maybe your funding sources are a little bit different. That's sort of first category. Second category, I would call fee-driven and oftentimes sort of subscription fee-driven. So you pay sort of a monthly fee for, for a service. And then the third category are payments. And you know, by that, I largely mean interchange or card swipe fees. You know, I think there could be a fourth category, float income. So sort of making money off of deposits or balances. Suddenly that has economics in the last year and a half with the change in interest rates. And so those are the broad categories. You know, I think it's, it's true that many neobanks have all of these in some form, but they tend to be led by one or another. So I work at Chime. Chime is very much in the third category, the payments category. And we like it because it's a pretty asset light model. In our case, it's highly recurring in nature. And probably most importantly, it's aligned with our members. So we aren't charging fees, sort of getting kicked when you're down type of a model. We only actually get those recurring payments when we earn the trust and the right to serve our customers in a primary account capacity. And for that, we can offer basically a a free product. Got it. And I've actually noticed that a lot of the fintech services, particularly that third bucket, they're free to the end user, free banking, no overdraft fees, get paid early. And so can you dig a little bit more into how you make money off of the services if they are free? 
Yeah. So again, rather than charging direct consumer fees, which in this industry can often be pretty punitive and again, structured in a way that kind of kicks you when you're down, right? You, you get punished for slipping up. We make money largely from the card networks. That's called interchange or, or basically card swipe fees. So maybe real quick, what, what is that? What are, what are yeah, swipe fees? That would be helpful. The swipe fees are the, the fees that merchants pay to accept card payments point of sale. So the, the card networks like Visa and MasterCard, they set these rates sort of as the intermediary in the payments ecosystem. And then the economics of those fees then sort of get distributed through the ecosystem of parties that are involved in card payments. So that includes the merchant acquirers. Think of them as like the banks where merchants have accounts. On the other side, issuer of cards. So these are the banks where consumers have accounts, where we all might have debit and, and, and credit cards. There's the payment processing software providers. And then of course, there's the, the networks themselves, like Visa and MasterCard. And so generally speaking, the issuers get the majority of these economics and kind of bring us back to Chime. You can kind of think about Chime as earning the issuer economics, even though Chime isn't technically the issuer itself. We partner with banks to do that. But that's how that's how we make make money. And we've been able to develop a pretty pretty attractive set of unit economics off of interchange alone. But there's really, I would say, a couple of things you have to do to make that a reality. Number one, you have to keep your your cost structure low. And we've been able to do that by building a lot of our tech in-house in a sort of modern, low-cost way. But you also need enough transaction activity to make it work. You can't just sort of have a secondary card with a, with a little bit of transaction activity. You really need this like top-of-wallet card relationship, which I think is where China is sort of differentiated among their consumer fintechs. And again, we like all this because it's aligned with our member, right? We only actually get those economics when we've actually earned the trust to serve customers in this in this sort of primary capacity. A lot to dig into there. This is this is awesome, Matt. So you'd mentioned partnering with banks. So I'm a footnotes guy, okay? My middle name is is Footnotes, CJ Footnotes Gustafson. I notice on the websites they'll say sometimes we are not a bank. Can you explain how that works then? How you've banking like features, but you aren't actually a bank? Yes. Very good question. <laughs> not not just the footnotes question. So Chime is not a bank. We partner with banks. The way this actually works is that no customer funds actually sit on Chime's balance sheet. They sit entirely on our partner bank's balance sheet in FDIC-insured bank accounts. Basically the same thing that you would get if you went and signed up for a checking account at Wells or B of A or Chase. By the way, that's, that is different than a lot of, for example, P2P fintechs out there where customer funds often do sit on the payment or tech company's balance sheet. So, so there's a difference. But maybe the, I think the best way to explain this is kind of to actually talk about history a little bit, which is if you zoom out and look at the backdrop of retail and consumer banking in this country, over the past, call it two, two and a half decades, there has been tremendous consolidation in the industry by the top, call it four to five banks at the expense of small and sort of more mid-sized regional banks. The top four to five banks now have something close to like half of consumer deposits in this country. And so the business case for these smaller banks is rather than go out and try to compete with a big bank marketing budget and acquire individual customer accounts, why don't you acquire a portfolio of deposits via a partner, a program manager like Chime? And then they can essentially use that to fund 
the, the asset side of the of their business, the, their loan book. In our case, the way that we structure our agreements is our partner banks largely get the float economics, whereas we get the payment economics, which for the members, the customers that we serve, that's really where the vast majority of the economics are. But to your point, the vast majority of folks probably aren't looking at the footnotes. They actually don't really know that Chime isn't necessarily the backend bank. And that's because you know we do all the product development, we do all the marketing, we do all the customer service, we take the fraud risk. Our partner banks basically serve two primary functions. They're the provider of FDIC-insured bank accounts, and they are also technically the card issuers. But it's been this pretty like symbiotic relationship, honestly. Our bank partners get to focus what they're good at doing, which is managing a balance sheet, and we get to focus what we're good at, which is developing great, innovative, you know, customer-friendly friendly products. It's all checking out to me now because like I have a, an account with Found. It's for like one person businesses. And for a while I was like, who the hell is Piermont Bank that my money is coming from? And like the same thing happened to me when I had tried to start a startup a couple of years ago where I had the Stripe account and I was working with Bank Novo and it kept coming from Middlesex Federal Savings Bank. And I was like, where are these banks and how is my money wrapped into this? <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we didn't invent this model, this bank partnership models been used for for a while. I think maybe China is sort of pioneering some of the scale at which it can it can reach. But right. it's interesting. I think the regulatory community is increasingly embracing this model as being here to stay, just given how much value we're providing to kind of an overlooked segment of consumers. But operating these partnerships the right way is not necessarily just straightforward. We've, I would say, taken a pretty deliberate approach in the way that, you know, we've structured our products and work with our bank partners. It's like kind of the opposite of Silicon Valley move fast and break things. We have a core value at Chime to respect the rules. And it is very much driven off of this, uh, you know, I think belief that we operate in a regulated industry for a reason. We're talking about like everyday folks, hard-earned money. And so we just take that stuff seriously. And even though we aren't regulated ourselves, we sort of, we operate as if we And you'd brought up earlier that you need to be top of mind for these reoccurring or or recurring transactions. How do you think about user activity? Do you consider yourself a company that's looking to gauge activity on like a daily basis then? Yeah, it's an awesome question. We tend to think about engagement or activity on a monthly basis. Our business really revolves around acquiring these primary account relationships. And the way that we typically define that is if somebody chooses chime to send us their paycheck. Most folks are paid every couple of weeks. And so that tends to be like the best period of engagement. But yeah, I think your intuition is right in that our members also often use us as their top of wallet card, which you use every day, right? You make a couple of transactions a day, your everyday expenses, gas station, groceries, errands, whatever, whatever it is, bills. And so yeah, on average, the DAU to MAU ratio, let's say, is quite quite strong in our business. Right. And that that's a great leading indicator that they've chosen you as their primary banking partner if you have your paycheck going there. That that totally makes sense. You know, it's we've been focused on this since literally day one. And it's been a blunt, uh, a blunt instrument, but a really effective one, right? And you might think about it intuitively. It's not like the easiest conversion uh step. Right. But once you get it's it, a lot of trust to do that. It's trust. Exactly. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And so is that kind of the edge of the wedge that you try to get them to interact with you based on a pay cycle? And then you try to add products on top of that over time? 
I would say yes and no. The way that we have built our products today, they largely kind of only unlock once you become a primary account user or you become a direct depositor. A great example of this is our product called SpotMe. So SpotMe is our take on overdrafts, except that it's free. We allow our members to go negative into their accounts up to a couple hundred bucks. And instead of charging a $35 fee, when you go negative by two bucks, you literally can do it for free. And if you want, give us an optional tip. That has been a awesome driver top of funnel and getting members to convert. Like, right, you can sign up for Chime, get up to $200 of free overdraft. So that's kind of a new user hook, if you will. But what we also see is that once folks convert to primary, convert to direct deposit, it's also been a, a great driver of retention and keeping people on the platform. I like that. And just to dig into that user onboarding, I feel like in the banking industry in general, there is this inherent friction to onboard users as fast as possible to get them through the proper regulatory and compliance processes. You mentioned that one of your core values was to not break the rules. How do you innovate there to get things to go faster without, you know, stepping on some toes? Yeah, no, this is a this is an awesome question. And you could probably have a whole podcast series just on like questions that come out of this one. Um, <laughs> there's kind of a whole like sub-industry in and around this area, KYC and fraud. So again, the levels that we offer Reg E protected, fully FDIC insured deposit accounts. Same thing that you get if you signed up for a checking account at Wells or B of A. And as part of that, we have to comply with a pretty robust KYC process. So we have to verify your address, your name, your social security number, make sure that you're not on an OFAC or a watch list. And we use a few third-party services to do that, to verify the data. But it's not sort of this like simple yes, no. <laughs> There's not perfect data. ID theft is a, is a real thing. So it becomes this risk decision, right? And there's a whole set of infrastructure, a lot of which we built, some of which we rely on partners for to make the right risk decision and to balance you know, an easy and seamless experience while preventing bad actors or fraudulent activity to, to come on the platform. But this is like... This is the bread and butter and like the nitty gritty of our enrollment funnel where, you know, small minute changes can actually have pretty outsized impact on, on unit economics. But if you zoom out here, like, I think it's often a little bit misunderstood. Payments companies like ours are really risk-driven businesses, you know, not necessarily credit risk, but fraud risk. It's a real cost to do a business in our category. And it's KYC is sort of one angle, but it's also the payments vectors themselves. You know, various kinds of payments come with different types of risk. And there's always this trade-off between ease of use and risk loss. And so getting these access and limit and policy dials right, it's sort of like this never-ending part of the business. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Michael Tannenbaum, who's the CFO and COO of Brex. And he said, listen, I look at my job as also the chief risk officer at the company. And it's just hitting me now, Matt, as I hear you describe that. You have a lot more I guess, vectors for risk to hit than a typical company. I mean, I work at a B2B SaaS marketplace and I don't have to think about half the stuff that you have to. Yeah, it's the nature of the beast. We're a payments company and payments companies are also volume businesses. And as you add volume and add new products, you add new, new vectors of risk too. I got to ask you then, we've learned a little bit about your business model. How have the competitive moats either for Chime or in the industry evolved over time. Does Chime have a secret sauce or competitive moat that you kind of look to as, as a way to get more users and keep them successful over time? Yeah, I think it might be worth maybe even taking a step back a little bit too. Sure. Just talking about the industry itself. So as I mentioned, we 
know, we serve everyday working age adults making up to about 100K. And the financial reality for most people in that demo is that you live paycheck to paycheck. Right. That's a specific demographic. Yeah. So why do we target them? It's because this is the population that has basically been failed by the incumbent banking. Right. Forgotten about by a lot of them. Yeah. It just so happens it's most people in this country, right? Um, (laughs) And you know, there's some pretty large and I would say structural limitations that prevent incumbents from serving the financial needs of everyday folks. Some are probably pretty obvious, like high cost structures, pretty entrenched in the form of branches and tech and workforce. They they often rely on sort of antiquated, sometimes outsourced tech stacks, so they have a hard time innovating. But I think the more like fundamental point about the difference between incumbent banking ecosystem is that it's a balance sheet driven business, right? They earn most of their income from taking in consumer deposits as a cheap cost of capital and then using that to fund a loan book. Nothing against that business model. <laughs> in fact, that's a great business model for high balance customers. But if you are an everyday person in this country, chances are you're living paycheck to paycheck, again, like 70% of America. And so by definition, you don't have a high balance. So you just aren't mm. interesting to big banks. Yeah, you're not attractive to that business model. Exactly. And so what's the alternative? The alternative for big banks is to compensate for the high cost structure with fees. And it's a lot of fees. Again, it's sort of, you get dinged when you trip on a low balance, you maintenance fees, overdraft, other fees. So this is a generalization, but I think what exists today is essentially this like two-tiered banking system in this country. The top 20 or 30% of the most financially well-off get like relationship banking. You can go down to your corner bank branch and, and get a private banker. But the the remaining 70% people are just being served in this like misaligned way, right? And so that yields this experience that's not just unhelpful, it often feels adversarial. And I'm going to, you know, take this to hyperbole for a second, but essentially 70% of this country is being served by a business model that profits from misfortune. That's essentially what, you know, what it is. And I think in contrast, We've built a business model that actually profits when we earn our members' trust. It is a 180, right? But again, there's two things you got to do to get that right. You got to keep your cost structure low, and you got to be able to earn this top of wallet or primary account account relationship, which we've we've you know had some success in doing. But the implication of all this is is huge because it frees us up to actually be authentically focused on solving member needs and earning trust. Whereas at big banks, the incentive is just to sort of eke out the you know next dollar of fees. So, you know, at the end of the day, to answer your question, what is our moat? Our technology platform is our moat. Scale in this business is also a moat. Like again, payments is a volume business. You get real scale benefits as you drive more volumes. But I think the most important one that you actually already mentioned, and this is probably a little bit squishy for our, our finance friends, but it's true. Our moat is trust. Because trust is what feeds this primary account adoption. Once we get a primary account, that feeds more engagement and data. We use that engagement and data to create more personalized product experiences, which feeds more trust and stickiness and so on. So that's why we obsess every day about getting the details right. Our founder, Chris, likes to talk about how retail is detail. Um, but you know, it matters. It's this, this trust factor. It's hard to earn, easy to lose. And so that's what you know, we wake up thinking about it every day. My favorite book of all time is The Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey. He was one of the co-founders of Square. And he had identified this 
kind of invisible barrier. And he had drawn it as like a triangle where you had like the merchants that did millions and millions a year. You had like the middle class kind of merchants that did hundreds of thousands a year. And then after like, I think it was like $150,000, it was impossible to be able to accept a credit card. And he had identified that this was the long tail that was actually potentially most valuable. And if someone could create a technology, and like you said, have a cost structure that enabled him to serve them, it would unlock this huge area of not only customers, but economic opportunity for them. He gave the example of his friend, I think was a glass blower. So he's a really talented artist, but he could only accept cash. And because of that, it held back a lot of the customers that he could interact with and he couldn't sell online because of it either. And so just when you were going through that, it reminded me of kind of going after this unguarded area that has been underserved for a long time. Yeah. You know, I think we just feel like it's simply a better way to serve this part of the population. And I think there's a ton of parallels in our stories. They've obviously had a huge amount of success. Yeah. You know, I think we have a very similar sort of mission driven aspect of the company to help our members unlock their financial progress, which is hard to do when you're you know, paying three, $400 in fees just for the right to have a checking account. Yeah. And you'd mentioned cost structure and balance sheets before. I'm curious if fundraising for companies like a business model like yours, is that any different than fundraising for a typical SaaS company? Yeah, good question. So it depends on the business model. So you know, for many neobanks that do have credit or balance sheet business models, the answer is yes, right? You oftentimes need to raise lending capital in addition to equity capital. There are various ways, you know, uh, avenues to do that. Some neobanks, probably less so in the US, but more in other geos, have a banking license. So then you sort of have things like capital requirements start to kick in. So that is another factor. But again, for us, we're we're sort of, again, asset light. We don't have large balance sheet needs to fund a lending business. That's not to say we don't do some of this, but it's just a Got it. And those licenses that you had alluded to, is that like a regulatory check that you qualify for? Or is that something like a taxi medallion or a liquor license where there's only a certain amount of them going around and you have to bid on them? Yeah, you can't sort of just snap your fingers and go get a banking license. Oh, uh, damn. So unfortunately, okay. not the way it works. <laughs> that was my game plan. Um, it's a big endeavor. And you know, I think if you look at other fintechs who have chosen to go that route, there's a few different ways you can kind of buy your way into it by buying a bank or sort of going the, the de novo bank charter route, which typically is a bit harder and, you know, more, more involved. But, you know, I think that route makes a lot of sense for businesses that do have balance sheet driven business models, right? Where the, the cost of capital or the cost of funds is really a key part of your unit economics. If you can sort of fund that off of deposits, which tend to be a much cheaper cost of capital, that makes a lot of sense. Got it. And so our mutual acquaintance who who got us in touch, uh, Samir, shout out Samir, he has broken down the payments industry for me a little bit before. And so I'm a startup CFO. I'm always wiring money, but it goes a little bit deeper than that. I was hoping we could do a little bit of payments 101 for listeners, if you're cool with that, Matt. Yeah. So I wanted to discuss the differences in costs between an ACH, a wire, and an instant transfer. Can you just break down those three of, of what makes them different and why they may be free or, or cost money? Yeah. So, you know, you covered, I think, a number of the sort of key types of payments. Uh, I may have forgot a few. So feel free to throw in a, a couple of bullets. Uh, cash would be one, checks would be another. And then there's, of course, like the card networks themselves, right? But yeah, maybe just to take through these a little bit. So, ACH, this is a bank transfer or the direct deposit of your paycheck uh, would go through ACH. This is a really very inexpensive 
a lot lower risk type of, of transaction, but it's not very fast. And that's because it goes through the Federal Reserve clearinghouse system and then it's sort of like batched. So Is that why it's safer? In part, yes. That's why it's sort of a, a lower risk transaction. But again, not very fast. Right. Wires is sort of the other other end. It is more expensive. Banks are taking the risk when it comes to wires, fraud risk, but it is faster, right? And so you sort of have this speed versus cost trade-off there. Of course, there's the card networks themselves. With card networks, you can have instant authorization, but then it can take one to three days for the actual transaction to settle. So there is some timing piece there. And then you mentioned instant transfers. There's a few different sort of flavors, I guess, of instant transfers. There's instant ACH, or sort of a real, real-time real payment. It's not been sort of hugely adopted yet. It's mainly a business-to-business transaction, and it's a push payment only. So that's, that's one type. And then but you can also do instant transfers, which is a little bit more applicable to consumer side, actually via the card network rails themselves. And so, you know, Visa and MasterCard have products, this is called Visa Direct, that enable you to do a like instant push P2P payment. So yeah, those are, I guess, some of the various types of... of and so on a wire, they cost 30 or 40 bucks usually. Is that because that's the cost the bank has determined the risk is and they need to make some money off it because they're underwriting that risk? Yeah, in part, it's to, it's to recover the um, broad risk on that. Although 30 to 40 bucks, that's that's pretty steep. You might need to... <laughs> I, I got to get an account with Chime instead of Bank of America. <laughs> and for all the CFOs out there making transfers, other than speed and cost, are there any other considerations that they should have on their checklist? Like my simple mind is like, what's this going to cost me and how fast will it get there? I think those are the main two as it relates to, you know, CFOs making kind of business to business payments. When it comes to consumer, there's a whole other, you know, yeah. that's the that's criteria, I think. And speaking of that, B2C neobanks are out there, but they're also B2B neobanks. Are there any key distinctions between the two besides the customer, like maybe the business model? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a different customer. I think the value props, there's probably some overlap, but also pretty different, right? For a business customer, you know, you can imagine things like spend management or other value props becoming more important. I would say the business models behind them are probably pretty similar though. You know, there's payments. There's the float income. There's obviously a lending opportunity for, for small businesses. Maybe there's a subscription fee type of model, but it's just the units that are different, right? The actual like unit economics, therefore, are, I would say pretty, pretty different. Got it. And so unit economics is a great transition to one of my favorite categories, and that's on metrics. And so I'm curious, Matt, how you think about the lifetime value of a user or a customer at Chime? Yeah, we are pretty unit economics obsessive at Chime, Love it. Um, I would say, and we take a pretty detailed approach. So we we actually project LTV at the cohort level. And in our business, conversion rates, so think about this as the rate at which signups convert to becoming active or a primary account. So conversion rates, retention rates, engagement rates, even unit profit margins, they all have curves in our business. So we actually project each one of these kind of sub KPIs out for each of our given cohorts. And we use a lot of historical data as well as sort of like initial data, early, you know, first few weeks, first few months of data to project that out. We accumulate all of that up and then we take a look at how much an average user has driven in contribution profits for that cohort after X many years, after Y many years. And because we have 
you know, I think had some success in reading these primary account relationships. Again, they're very sticky. You don't change your bank account or where your paycheck goes every day. And so our cohorts are pretty long. They kind of look like annuities, not unusual for a SaaS company, I think, but definitely unique for, for consumer. So long that we don't really know when it ends. <laughs> There's data out there that says that you're you know, the average customer has a checking account for 10 to 15 years. China wow. Wow. That That's long. longer than like an enterprise SaaS LTV. Yeah. We aren't banking on 10 to 15 years. We don't have that much data to, to prove it, but we have to take some view on like what the call it residual value or potential value is after that, you know, call it first five, seven, seven years or so. But yeah, so we, we do obsess over this and I think we developed a sophistication in this area which Samir had a huge part in early on in, in the company. I would say we we sort of had to. <laughs> you know, at that period of time, no one had really proven unit economics on an interchange-driven model before Chime. In fact, I think there was a pretty strong bias in the venture community that you couldn't make a largely debit interchange model work. It made fundraising in those days rather challenging. So we had to like be focused on this for survival. We did, and we continue to grow aggressively, but always with discipline around unit economics. And so I'm sure that informs then how much you can spend on a customer to acquire them, right? Yep. So we take that LTV calc, and then we solve for what we're willing to pay in CAC in order to achieve a certain ROI. And the ROI, we tend to triangulate a little bit. We look at both a, a short-term ROI, like a payback, CAC payback, but we also look at a longer-term ROI like LTV to CAC, just given our cohorts are so so long tenured. And you know, ultimately what we care about really is the cost to acquire a primary account relationship. Because again, those are the subset of our members that really drive our business. But because it takes time for our members to convert to primary after they enroll, it doesn't happen overnight. Got to go to your payroll department, like fill out a piece of paper, you know, it might take a cycle for two. So we translate these sort of primary account CAC, if you will, into a cost per enrollment or sign up, like further up. Oh, that's super fascinating. A little bit more, you know, observable data. So yeah, you know, it's interesting because our business and our cohorts behave this way, that it takes time to convert. It does make some, some metrics like magic number, which is a little bit more SaaS based, you know, SaaS focus, but when you look at those types of things on a quarterly basis, it's sort of hard for our business, right? We get the the benefit of deploying marketing dollars don't accrue to us immediately. They don't accrue to us in that quarter. It just takes some time for these cohorts to ramp up. But then once they do, they tend to retain very well and they're very, very predictable. This is like the super nerdy stuff, but I've I've had similar analyses too, where I'm trying to quantify the acquisition cost of a registration because I still have to get you configured, onboarded, and then purchasing. And like yep. you said, there is that lag time in between. Yeah. And it's hard. You know, it's never a set it and forget it, right? You constantly have to sort of be checking in and updating. And what would you say your North Star metric is at Chime? If, philosophically, we are a growth high growth, aggressive growth with discipline company. And so what that means practically is how do we maximize growth at sensible unit economics? As I mentioned, because our cohorts are you know quite long tenured, we triangulate with a longer term LTV to CAC with a shorter term payback metric. I would say sometimes those targets change and evolve. I think they're informed by you know strategic decisions, the macro environment, but that really has been the North Star that we've used to both, you know, evaluate business performance, 
but also make decisions about how to trade off you know, growth and profitability. Is there a metric you look at first every morning or you get like emailed or Slack to you? I look at a lot of metrics every morning. <laughs> um, I look at our entire funnel. I look at both the CAC and the LTV side. You know, for us, our business is this portfolio of card purchase volume that tends to be highly non-discretionary, right? Given who we serve, they're using us for their everyday expenses, getting gas, buying groceries, paying for bills. And there's just a lot of steadiness and predictability with that. It's very different than, you know, payments companies that might be indexed to e-com or discretionary spend. We just have this sort of resilience in our in our business. So, you know, the LTV side, and, and the purchase volume side, all of that, it doesn't change much day to day. doesn't mean I don't obsess and, and check it yeah. every day, <laughs> but there's a lot of steadiness. On the flip side, you know, we think we're acquiring more primary accounts and, and bringing on more checking accounts than any other business in the country right now. And so there's a little bit more velocity of change. Um, so we, I look at the enrollment and CAC, CAC yeah. metrics pretty frequently. <laughs> it's funny. We talked to uh, Yvonne from Webflow and I asked him what his North Star metric was or what he checked every morning. He said he checked total ARR every morning. I was like, total ARR, man. Like, don't you look at additions or anything? He's like, oh no, I've memorized how much it went up since the prior day. I was like, okay, wow. Uh, <laughs> you, you know your numbers pretty well. I wanted to ask you about the CFO position. A lot of the listeners are CFOs or rising members of the finance orgs. And so what qualities do you think separate the good CFOs from the great ones? Well, I think probably the one you just mentioned is a good place to start on that, which is just knowing the business inside and out, you know, expert level facility with metrics. But, you know, maybe what I'd quickly add to that, to me, it's importantly, it's not just the financial metrics, it's being an expert on the business metrics or the performance metrics. What that allows you to do is you can then link financial performance to product strategy and product decisions. I think that's something that, you know, I find to be really, really important. So that's one thing I would say. Another thing that the, you know, CFO is in a great position to do and can add a lot of value around is, is being kind of the voice of the external world. So the voice of markets, the voice of the investor community, you know, I think a key part of our job is to read the tea leaves of what's going on around us and then translate that back into the company to be able to adjust strategy and make, you know, different business decisions accordingly. That's really good because a lot of people think about CFOs as being not back office per se, but you're helping the trains run on time internally. But what you're saying is that you can help translate what's going on in a macro sense to the rest of the company. You're out there talking to bankers, talking to VCs. So how do I translate what's going on outside these four walls and how it impacts us? Yeah. And, you know, for us, you know, macro economy is, is also a big part of our business, right? Like wage growth and inflation, unemployment rates, very direct impact to what we see in terms of user onboarding, you know, the deposit volume coming into Chime accounts, the spend volume coming off. So, yeah, there's a lot there too that I think is, at least in our case, kind of kind of right up the alley of the, of the CFO. But I agree, it, it depends on the, the archetype and maybe the specific company. And I would say that's probably... Maybe the third thing I'd mention, which is particularly for founder-led companies, yeah, I really just think that you have to be able to draft off your CEO. You need to be the right complement. And I, I couldn't really probably have articulated this at the time that I joined Chime. But looking back, I see very clearly 
that I was a you know solid complement to the rest of the team. I brought like something that's a little bit different, different perspective to the table. And that you know I think has been critical in sort of the match, you know, strong match that we've had over the years. I think you can tell that relationship too, where a really great CEO CFO relationship is they'll be in the room together playing off each other and they know who's going to pick up that question, who's going to pick up the other question. Yeah, I think that's uh, for sure a good parameter. And I think that maybe is also one more thought on this. And you know, if I if I had to choose one, actually, one answer to this question, this would probably be it. The one thing that makes great CFOs and finance leaders are actually the non-financial skills. <laughs> and I think good analysis is kind of half the job, right? But then using it to tell a story and influence is the other half. The great CFOs and finance leaders turn numbers into narrative. I joined Chime not knowing I would be a CFO. I didn't even know I was going to be a finance person. I joined Chime as a business person and I'm not a CPA. I'm not even a traditionally like trained FP&A person. A lot of my contributions to the company have been in negotiating our commercial partnerships, fundraising, telling our equity story, making sure we make high ROI business decisions. And I sort of like leaned in to that. And yeah, there's just, from my perspective, no one archetype at all that can make a, a CFO great. I'm so glad you brought that up because a few podcasts ago, we had Andy Raskin on and what he does is he teaches companies how to harness the power of a strategic narrative and telling a story, I think is the number one quality or skill that finance people can work at because the numbers are really just a character in that overarching story. You have to be able to tell why it's important and why what you're doing is meaningful enough for people to pay attention. Totally. And when you can use numbers effectively, you can do that credibly, right? Within the org too, like you said, like to influence people, being able to tell a story of like, this is why we can't do that because, you know, we all have this goal of where we want to go. Yeah. And in our experience, that's, I think, where this intersects with unit economics, right? We've been able to develop a framework around that that makes business decisions a lot easier. We can sort of come back to those metrics as kind of, our, as you said, North Star. Nice. All right, Matt, what we're going to do is I'm going to take you into what we like to call our long ass lightning round. <laughs> so the first question I'm going to hit you with is what's an example of something you've screwed up on the job? It doesn't have to be a chime necessarily, but, uh, you know, we're all human. Well, I'm glad you called this, you know, a long ass lightning round because I've got a lot of examples to this one. Um, I think the one that I sort of laugh at most in retrospect, and I feel like every finance person has their own story of this, of doing Excel on a shared screen, but then like absolutely just, you know, shutting down. So my example of this was early on in my career, I sort of cut my teeth in my career at BlackRock. I was probably an analyst or an associate kind of a couple of years into, into my career. I was in a meeting with a bunch of senior folks, a really important client. And, you know, my screen was like, you know, up, we're sort of live doing this live work. I would characterize my Excel skills as like very macgyver like pretty effective, but just not pretty, you know, pretty, pretty hacky. I know people have these, you know, very elegant uh, Excel skills. Yeah. That is not me. So it was a totally valid way to do it. But, you know, it's like everybody in the room's jaw drops. Like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing it this way? And so I basically just got like yanked from the stage. The MD took over. I just went and like sat in the corner, embarrassed. So oh, anyway. Excel stage fright. That's like, I'm having like a visceral reaction to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Okay. If you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell them? This is going to maybe sound a little trite, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is to embrace failures. My quick backdrop to that answer is before Chime, I was a co-founder of a company that ultimately failed. 
And it was a pretty tough experience as a first-time founder, but you know, now with a few years <laughs> between us and looking back, I would not have traded that experience for anything. I would not have said that at the time. At the time, I you know, felt like I had to come up with this like great explanation for what happened. But I think after I started to talk to, to folks after the fact, I realized how valuable this experience of dealing with the ups and downs, you know, learning the zero to one part of company building the hard way, what it's really like to be a founder and I guess ultimately how to navigate failure. And I, you know, for me, I think that's just built a ton of resilience. And so I've tried to embrace this, this idea of, you know, learning from and growing from failure in my career. That's awesome. I respect that a lot. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack, sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Matt, can you walk me through your finance software stack? What are you using to get the job done? Yeah, let's see. So we're on NetSuite. It's our primary you know, accounting software. We use both Zip and Coupa, actually, for procurement and AP. We use Coupa for expense management. We also use the Coupa risk assessment to do you know, a lot of vendor onboarding in our business. Like anything that can touch customer PII, personal information, goes through a ton of review. So that's a big one for us. Let's see, Ironclad, DocuSign for you know contract mm-hmm. management. Our FP&A team uses Adaptive. Our HRIS is Workday. All of our metrics and KPIs are in Looker or Kiva for financial reporting. You know, trying to get get ready for public life. What else? Flowcast with a closed process. I'm sure. Oh, nice. Yeah, we, we talked to Razak Jallo uh, a couple podcasts ago. He's awesome. That's a good stack. What's the most recent tool you bought? I think it was Zip on the procurement cool. side. All right, last question I got for you. What's the craziest thing you've seen someone try to expense before? (laughs) I love this question. I got two for you. Pottery class. Pottery, okay. And a swim lesson. (laughs) So the same person just trying to, you know, work on some new skills? (laughs) (laughs) You know, professional, personal development, I guess. (laughs) Got it. That's a good note to end on. Appreciate it, Matt. Thanks so much for coming on and being generous with your time. Thanks for having me. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.